Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation 12. Um, so this morning's going to be fun. Uh, know that I love you. <laughs> I, I would probably guarantee that a few of you are going to walk away and I'm going to wreck everything that you thought to be true. I love you. Would you rather me preach the truth or do you want me to preach whatever feels good and comfortable? There we go, right? So we're going to go with the truth on this one. Even if you would have said comfortable, nah, we're going with the truth. Because there's a lot of times that we, we take what maybe was taught to us or that we thought was right, and then we come across Scripture and it's like, well, hold on, that doesn't fit in my box of theology and my paradigm of understanding of who God is. And now we're at this weird tension moment. Do I take with what I always thought to be true or do I hold fast to the word of God? Let me give you a case in point. I've used this example before. I, I kind of grew up understanding or feeling like I was taught, God will not give you more than you can handle. And I love that. Doesn't that sound warm? Like you're around a, a nice campfire with a s'more and some hot chocolate, just that God won't give you anything that you can't handle until he does. And then you're sitting there wondering, well, is God not real? Is he not good? Does he not love me? Why did he give me this thing that I really don't want to handle or can handle? And really what that, that truth that I thought was was just a kind of a twisted version of the verse that says, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but will provide a way of escape. And so there, I was kind of at that crossroads of understanding, what am I going to hold fast to, what I always grew up believing and kind of holding to, or am I going to hold fast to the word of God? And, and I say this only because I, I, I know the issue, because I was there. And even after first service, I had a couple people come up and say, I've never heard that. And these aren't people that like, this is their first Sunday at church. <laughs> One was a PK. So I'm like, I'll be getting a call from her dad, right? Like, I'm wondering how this will go. But we want to walk through Scripture well. And, and for us, we have to have grace and openness to lay down our preconceived ideas and say, all right, Lord, I want to learn your word. And so before we jump in there, there's a few slides. You see the TV. We're going to geek out a little bit. So I want to roll through like three basic slides before we jump into the sermon. So first slide, this is all the way when we were studying the book of Matthew and we got to chapters 24 and 25, which should be studied along with Revelation. And Daniel should be studied along with Revelation. And First Thessalonians should be studied with Revelation. But they only give me about 40, 45 minutes and I steal five more even from that, right? So there's a lot there. But if you would take just a literal, normal, grammatical reading of Scripture, you would walk away with this kind of timeline of Scripture, of eschatology, right? So right now you see the little blue, uh, little I'm here dot, like we're in the church age, and we are waiting for this event right here called the rapture, which there's no signs or nothing attached to it, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and the church will be caught up, and then there's the seven years of tribulation, which is kind of what a lot of Revelation is discussing the events of that, and then there's the second coming of Christ, and you have the battle of Armageddon, and then, then you have this thousand-year reign called the millennium, and then at the end of it, there's the great white throne judgments, Satan's loosed, last little battle, and he's thrown into the lake of fire, and then the eternal state of new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Uh, a little nuance point, because sometimes these are like, where am I going to bring this up? Why we got the TV out? Let's do it. Next slide. And so we're going to zoom in a little bit here. So we, we as the church, this is where we're at right now. And again, the only thing that we're waiting on is rapture. First Thessalonians 4.17 is what teaches us that. And we know this ev event has no signs tied to it. I cannot say that more clear. And so when, we, when you hear you know, Instagram reels or people talking about the signs of the times... They're not talking about rapture because there's no, because if there were before or after it, we would reverse engineer it and try to come up with, okay, when's that day going to be? 
which, I don't know, anybody remember what yesterday was? Rosh Hashanah, the, Trump, uh, the Feast of Trumpets. And so when you look at the three feasts left for Christ to fulfill, those would hold that the rapture is going to happen on Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets. So didn't happen yesterday, but maybe next year, right? <laughs> but so we're, again, no signs tied to it. And so even that whole thing about the Jew, Jewish festivals, I would hold lightly, but there's no signs tied to it because that would attack the doctrine of imminence, meaning that at any moment. And we hear that even from Paul talking like, I'm, this is what I'm waiting on. He, he looked to this event as more imminent than his own death. And I think we as the church should say. And we know from Daniel 9 that tribulation, that seven years, is going to start as when the Antichrist signs a covenant with the many. Not all of Israel, but with the many, most. And we'll, we'll talk about what about the remnant that probably didn't like that covenant. Now, what's crazy is there is a time gap here. We don't know how long, because if we did, again, we would reverse engineer it and try to figure out when that day is, so that, just like, you know, when I was in, like, fifth grade, and my mom said, hey, I'll be home after work, that meant for her eight hours of working, I would goof off for seven and a half, and then the last half hour, I'd do all my chores as quickly as possible, especially when you saw the car coming down over the hill, like, quick, mom's home, get ready, or we're going to get beat. No, she really didn't beat us. Okay. But there is some type of a time gap here. And what we know from Daniel is that there, uh, the world needs to come into a one world government. You might have heard that. Daniel teaches us that. And then Daniel then says that that one world government will kind of uh, not divide, but settle into a 10 nation federation. And it's from that 10 nations that the person, just the human who is antichrist will be revealed. And I do believe that Satan always has a man on the stage, on the uh, kind of like, a, what's that batter's box? I don't play baseball. You know, batter, like the next guy up on the plate, like somebody always is ready to go. Yeah, all you sports people are making fun of me. Baseball is a boring sport anyway, right? <laughs> so not Mahomes playing the game, but we got somebody on the bench just to back up. We're ready to go because Satan's not omniscient. God is. And eschatology is not about Satan's events, but God's events. So when Satan, Satan, when God is ready to pull the trigger on end times, that's when Satan will respond to that. But Satan is not leading in that. And so we don't, we don't really know uh, when this time gap will look like, but that's when Antichrist will be revealed and he signs a covenant there. So there's a little bit of a time gap. And then one more slide for me. And so that, with Revelation, we're just looking at that seven-year tribulation, which we know, again, it starts with the covenant being signed with the many. God will seal the 144,000 witnesses, Jewish evangelists, and then he has these two witnesses that we talked about last week, and they have their ministry. And we've already walked through the seven seals and the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is kind of this halfway mark, this three and a half years. We've heard it described, uh, what is it? Uh, 42 months and 1,260 days and different kind of blockings of the first or the second half of tribulation. We know in this middle part because Revelation 10 to 14 is parenthetical. We're filling in a lot of details here. We're not moving the story yet. We're just filling in details. So we know the human that is going to be Antichrist will be killed about this halfway mark. Satan will be cast out of heaven. Hold your thought there. We'll talk. Satan is going to incarnate Antichrist. So Satan is going to be literally on earth incarnating the person of Antichrist. That's what brings about the death of the two witnesses that we'll talk about uh, next week. Antichrist will break that covenant. So in the first half, he was protecting the Jews. Now in the second half, because it's Satan incarnate of the body of Antichrist, he's going to be attacking the Jews, and they are called to flee, and that's a key component this morning. So just a little, little, little preamble to our sermon this morning, but if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, 
seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, which we understand in Jewish calendar, that's three and a half years halfway through. Now war arose in heaven, it's an odd thought, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. And he was thrown down to the, to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Another kind of Jewishy way to say three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman and to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." pretty obscure passage to say the least. And it's almost like a, it's a play, it's a sign, so we have all these characters. We have to understand who's who, you know, what's, what's literal, what's figurative, what's symbolic, who's, who's this cast of characters. And so first we have this woman appeared, this is a sign that appeared to him, a, a woman, and so who is this? And now there's different uh, commentators that would say, you know, we see this woman and we have a group of brothers and sisters in Christ that they would say this woman is Mary. And you could probably guess who just loves Mary and every time there's a woman it has to be Mary and she's so great and awesome and cool and it's probably not Mary. And then there's another uh, view that this has to be the church, right? The bride of Christ. But that puts us in some weird kind of understanding if we hold to that. And so who is this woman? Well, without boring you a ton and walking through, you know, a dozen Old Testament references, this woman is Israel. And one of the greatest ways that we can see that, because uh, that kind of terminology has always been used of Israel, think of Joseph, not Mary and Joseph, Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph got in some trouble with his, his brothers and with his dad. Why? because he liked to dream some dreams, and he had some crazy dreams. In one of them, he said, I saw the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to me and serving me. And his dad, Jacob, or Israel, kind of had a, an appropriate interpretation of that dream. What did he say? What do you think? That me, your mother, and your 11 brothers are going to bow down, and, and you're going to rule over us? Like, you're going to, is that what you think? And so we see that this is Israel, knowing that the woman, in using that terminology all through the Old Testament, is a reference to it, and just seeing that part, so it's not Mary, it's not the church, it's the woman, and she's pregnant. See, the church doesn't give birth to Jesus. 
Jesus came first, and then he said, I will build my church. So if anything, Jesus gives birth to the church. Don't take that too literal, or you're going to get in some weird, <laughs> you know what I mean? But Jesus built the church. But think of Isaiah 9, 6, we celebrated on Christmas. What do we say? For unto us, this is Israel, this is Isaiah, this is the nation of Israel, prophet of, for Israel, saying for unto us a child is born. And so Israel gives birth to Jesus. It's f Jesus is Jewish. And so the church and Israel are absolutely separate. And that's a theological like stance that we really need to take. Um, there is a view, it's called replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel in all of its promises. There's a few issues with that really quickly. There are certain promises that God only gave to Israel that he has not yet fulfilled them. And so if God has done away with Israel and he has no need for them anymore and we as the church have replaced it, what did we just say? We called God a liar. Anybody willing to stand up and call God a liar this morning? No. And there's a few of those and a very simple one. Again, talking about the birth story of Jesus, looking at Christmas, and we love Christmas, right? Because Hobby Lobby's already Christmas, Walmart's already Christmas. I don't even think they put the stuff up. I think they just put stuff in front of it, they sell that, and it's Christmas stuff. It's always Christmas, right? And so Luke, Luke chapter 1, 32, 33 verses, it says Jesus talking about he's yet to fulfill the promise to give to Mary about the promise that was given to Mary about him sitting on the throne of David. Has Jesus ever sat on the throne of David? No. So we are waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled. If God is done with Israel, then we can't fulfill that prophecy. Anybody want to stand up and say that Jesus doesn't fulfill prophecies? No. So there are things that we are waiting. And even in that timeline, when we talk about tribulation back in Matthew, when we were walking through that, we even kind of zoned in that once they rejected their Messiah, God put Israel on hold. And that's when the church started. And that's why it's called a mystery. Paul, a Jewish person who was well-versed in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery, meaning it was something not revealed yet. But the moment that the church is taken up, then God picks back up the nation of Israel and he's showing us the rest of the story of his program for the nation of Israel. So that's very key. We don't want to smear God's character and we want to see what is his plan for Israel. And I would say the same struggle that Israel and Jewish people have of Jesus and they miss him you know, we, we think of that as the church. Sometimes we walk through scriptures and it's like, how do these Jewish people that know so much about the Old Testament, how do they miss Jesus? It's the same way that we as the church miss Israel. It's the same way. So again, diving a little bit more into this. And so there, our next little uh, character on the scene in this little play is the red dragon. And this is Satan. Seven heads, speaking of the wisdom that he has, the ten horns, think a reference to that uh, ten federation, that nation federation that he has, speaking of his power. And there will even be kind of a revived Roman Empire-esque government that he will lead. And these seven diadems refer to his rulership. They're a king's crown, not a victor's crown, but it's showing that he will rule over. And Satan himself, looking at verse nine, you know, a third of the stars, he sweeps that tail and a third of the stars fall with him, a reference to the fall of the angels that followed after Lucifer in his rebellion, which, you know, they didn't do much math in seminary, but two thirds is still bigger than a third so we're on the winning side. I like that. It'd be different if we're like, yeah, two-thirds of them fell, and we're outnumbered. So we all got to kill two of them to win. It's like, I, I do the math like that. So, but a third of them fell. And then we have this man-child, right? So look at the dragon's desire. What is he, his desire? He wants to devour her child. Look at the life of Jesus. What's, what's the first big event that happens right after the birth of Jesus? Herod wanting to kill every newborn because he wants to maintain his throne. And so even from the very beginning, we see the schemes and the plans that Satan has to devour from the very beginning. And so we have that story where they go in and they kill every newborn. And that's why Joseph, in a dream from an angel, is warned, hey, take your wife and your child and flee to Egypt. 
And even when they came back, they were a little leery. It was like, I, we know Herod's dead, but his son is still kind of ruling, and they're, they're crazy as well. And so well, how about we just go move somewhere else, and they settle in Nazareth still fulfilling prophecy in doing that. But we see the, de- the desire of this dragon, of Satan, is to try to thwart any plan of God. I believe that's also why he goes and he turns. When we're talking about the tribulation, he starts attacking the Jews. Why? Because God has a plan for Israel. And if Satan can try to thwart any plan of God, God ceases to be who he is. It smears any aspect of his character. So we have this man-child, right? This is, and this is Jesus. And we see that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And you think, well, I mean, that's, that's cool. I mean, it's not a wooden stick. It's a rod of iron. It's not gold. It could be silver. That would have been a little bit neat. I mean, does it like cast spells? Like you would have thought something a little bit more. But it's a reference to a messianic psalm, Psalm 2, verse 9. That's a messianic psalm that's pointing to the Messiah. He'll rule with a rod of iron, and we'll see that brought up later as we're digging through other parts of Scripture. And so it's a, it's a reference to the reign of the Lord's anointed, or the Messiah. And, and we see kind of the, the two timestamps of the life of Jesus, his birth, and then he's caught up to God. So we see the starting and the ending points of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so we have this scene, this kind of play that is acting out. Could you imagine that? Like, you know, uh, if we in Cow Kids were like, you know, we should, do, we should do an Easter play. And some churches do that with their kids. Or, you know, maybe it's a Christmas play and the kids come up and act out some little scene. Can you imagine if we did this? Be like, all right, your kid's going to play the woman giving birth up here. One of your kids is going to be the dragon that's waiting to devour whatever comes out of her be like just trying to be biblical in our children's ministry right here you know so we're, we're really excited for London to want to put on the woman in the dragon play right there but then we hear that so she gives birth to this male child he's to rule of the nations with a rod of iron but he's caught up to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, meaning the last three and a half years of tribulation. This is where we're going to geek out. I've already seen it, and it's perfectly fine. If you want to snap pictures of the slides, you can, or if you just get us an email, we'll send them to you. So if you need to fact check me, there's a way to do that. So let's geek out a little bit. Uh, thank you. Revelation 12:6. We're going to compare it to Matthew 24, because Matthew 24 and 25 should be studied along with this, because that's what Jesus is talking about. Remember, his disciples rolled up to him and said, hey, when's the end of the age coming? When's all this going to throw down? They weren't asking about the church. They said, when are you going to come in your kingdom, in your glory? Like, when's this going to be all shored up? So he skips right over that and says, all right, we'll talk about it. And so this is what he says. So when you see the abomination of desolation, which we talked about last week, you have to have a temple for an abomination of desolation. So we're still waiting for that temple to be rebuilt. And we'll talk about what that is next week. But Jesus is saying, when you see that, and you'll know what it is, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So Jesus isn't even the first one on the scene to say that. He's saying, you know this, you good Jewish people that know the scriptures. You know what the abomination of desolation is. You know what the prophet of Daniel says. So when you see that, spoken of by Daniel, standing in the holy place, another reference to the temple, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That's why we know there's going to be a difference between the first half of tribulation and the second half. It's called the great tribulation. That's why some would believe that the rapture happens in the middle because that's the great tribulation. Like the church will live through the first part of tribulation, but then we won't live through the great tribulation. I don't care if it's trib or great. I don't want to live through any of it. And God's word says that we're not destined for his wrath. And we know, going back to our timeline, that the seven seals and the seven trumpets are God pouring out his wrath. You know, the first in the seals is by a fourth and then by a third. But at the second half of tribulation, it's the full strength of the wrath of God. 
unlike that anything has ever been seen. And I think there's reasons for that, and we'll walk through it. And so we hear Jesus telling, you know, almost like he's warning the Jewish people, Israel, when you see this, you need to flee to the wilderness, just like it says here from John, the woman fled into the wilderness. Next slide. This is Micah 2, 12. It says, I surely will assemble all of you, O Jacob, reference to all of Israel, right? And I will gather the remnant. So again, the Antichrist signs a covenant with the many, but not all. Those that don't sign that covenant or are not in favor of it, I think are gonna be the remnants of Israel. And he says, I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, key word there, like a flock, a flock that is in pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Well, we all know that the Bible wasn't written in English. Duh, it's Hebrew. A little bit of Daniel was written in Aramaic and then the New Testament was written in Greek. But here, the word fold for Hebrew is Basra, B-A-S-R-A-H. That's that word that's used. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern geography, there's a place called Basra. Next slide. So Daniel 11:41, he says, he, talking about the Antichrist, he shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Meaning he's gonna come in and conquer, but there's actually three nations that he will not be able to take over. Edom, Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. That's the same area, Basra and Edom. It's all the same area that he's talking about. And so when Antichrist comes in to take over, there's gonna be a small part that I, he can't take over. And why is that? It's the same location that Israel's told to flee to. And even right now, it's under one government as we are talking. And that's the Jordanian government. So this is South Jordan. Next slide for me. That's Basra or the city of Petra. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been to Petra here? I know, but let me answer the question before one of you dirty, rotten scoundrels asks me, are we ever gonna do a trip to Israel? Yes. Now? No. Okay, there we go. But this, this is Basra. This is, this, this is the area of Basra. This is the city of Petra. And those are real people. This is not like a little make and model. Those are real people so you can get a sizing. And there's a few places like that. Again, flee to the mountains. There are Jewish messianic Jewish people, so Jews that believe in Jesus so much that they have spent a lot of money on water, food, and resources, and Christian literature pointing to Christ as the Messiah, and they're stockpiling it in the places of Basra because two things, they know that the word of God is true, and when they study the scripture and they hear that their brethren will run and flee to the wilderness, that is prepared for them. They're providing some of those provisions and so that they, in that midst, they would be able to read and know that Christ is your Messiah. Can you imagine having such a firm faith in the word of God and a love for your brothers that you're gonna stockpile water and resources in places like this because you know if God's word says it, it will come to pass. And I have a heart for whoever that Jewish people would be that I wanna provide what I can so that they would be able to survive this three and a half years. And so that's the city of Petra. Next slide. This is where it gets fun. This is Isaiah 63. Again, uh, Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah was dug up in 1947, 1948. Dead Sea Scrolls that were predated all the way to like 200, 250 BC which was a great move for us archeologically in understanding that scripture was written uh, very early, not uh, more recent as some critical scholars would say. And so Isaiah tells us, who is this? Who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments, crimson is red, from Basra. So we have, so Isaiah's writing and he is seeing a vision of someone coming from this area and he is in crimson garments. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness. You ever sing that old banger of worship song, Mighty to Save? Who are you singing to? Jesus. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? And the words are written in red for my emphasis, not because of the words of Jesus, but I think they are. I have trodden the winepress alone, 
And that's key, alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So Isaiah is seeing the Messiah come from Basra, come from Edom, covered in blood. Why? Because Israel is called to flee there when they see the abomination of desolation. Because we understand that when Antichrist, the human, is killed and is incarnated by Satan himself, he will turn and go to attack all of the Jews. And Christ will defend the Jews at Basra. Turn to Revelation 19. <laughs> I can't just leave you with a couple lines of evidence, right? We gotta, we gotta exhaust this bad boy. We see in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, we get a picture of this rider on a white horse who is called faithful and true. It's, it's talking of Jesus. But look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven array in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. That's us. White and pure. Looking like the guy that never sees an ounce of playing time on the football field, right? You go, to the, you go to the game and you see all these kids and like you know, all their jerseys are grungy and dirty and grass stained. And then you got their like nice bright white ones. It's like you've never even seen the playing field, have you? Like you've never even done a cartwheel out there. That's us. So when we think, oh, I can't wait to go to war with Jesus and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be his right hand man. We're just gonna be thumping him. No, you're a cheerleader. Like <laughs> understand our role as the church at the return of Christ, pom-poms. Right there, right? Pom-poms. I call the top of the pyramid. Just going to call it now, right? <laughs> like, I'm not going to be at the bottom just trying to hold some of you up. Not at all. No. Because he said, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God of the Almighty. And his robe and on his thigh has that name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we see all of Scripture come together beautifully from Old Testament references to the visions that John has to show us this is Christ. And a lot of times in the church, the problem that we have that we miss Israel is we think that when Christ returns, where's he going to step foot on? Any Bible nerds in here like me? Mount of Olives. Think when he ascended into heaven, the two angels appeared and said to the disciples, why are you looking around? Why are you looking up into the sky? He's going to return the same way. And so we think that Jesus is going to ride in from heaven on a white horse and we're going to be behind him and then he's going to step on the Mount of Olives, which I think it's Zechariah tells us that it'll be split in two, which, you know, not that God needs it, but there is a, a, an earthquake line on the Mount of Olives and it hasn't happened yet. I mean, just, just fun stuff like that. But when we read this, what we actually see is this rider riding from and out of Edom, out of Basra. Where's he going? And what does it look like? Again, skipping ahead, but it's so good we have to talk about it twice. Go to Revelation 14. And Revelation 14, 14 starts the conversation about the harvest of the earth. And if you look at verse 19, it says, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. So this is a weapon of mass destruction. This guy's just bringing it with this sickle. This is Jesus. This is why he's covered in blood. And what's it say? Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city. What did Jesus say in Isaiah? What did the Messiah say? I've trodden the winepress alone. So when we return with Christ, and yes, we'll be in fine linen, we're going to look at Christ, and he's going to be covered in blood for the second time. Where was he covered in blood the first time? On the cross. And the second time is because he's defending Israel. If God didn't have a plan for Israel, why would he go and defend? Why would he be covered in blood? And it says that the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is one of those cool parts. You just can't make this stuff up. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah is going to ride out of Basra, out of Edom, 
Revelation tells us he's going to bring a sickle. Jesus tells us this in Matthew. He gives us a couple parables. He describes this event to us. And he's going to ride all the way to the Mount of Olives. And then we return with him clothed in fine linen. It's 186 miles from Basra to the Mount of Olives. Or in biblical measurements, 1,600 stadia. This is one of those areas where I look at the word of God. And truly, this is true. And we see over 40 different authors of all of Scripture, over 1,500 years, even the gap between the Old and the New Testament of 400 years. And we see this beautiful, like a puzzle, brought together that we see the story of God, that he still has a plan for Israel, and he's going to defend that remnant in Basra and in Edom. And to see that he alone troddens that. And I always struggled with that. It's like, why can't I be a part of that? Because I was alone on the cross as well. That there's nothing that you can do for your salvation. It's not a drop of your blood that's going to earn your salvation. I do that alone. And what about Israel? God's chosen people. I defend them alone. And so we ride in on white and we probably going to struggle with that and think, come on, Lord, just put me in the game. Just one time. Just let me just hold it and you can punt it. Just one thing. Just one. It's not. And then we see, so we have that scene there and then we get this like weird kind of just change of scenery and it says in verse seven, now war rose in heaven. So we, we see an understanding of what's going to happen there at Edom and Basra and the ride in there to the Mount of Olives. But then we have this heavenly war. There's wars in heaven? Like, I, that's not the heaven I want to go to. Like, when I die and go to heaven, I want the streets of gold. I want the mansion. I want no more pain. I want no more Broncos or the lions. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's heaven. Like, what, what are we doing here? There's war that's going to arise in heaven? And I want to be honest, this is where, this is going to shake you here. And what we have to lay down is our Hollywood cartoonized understanding of the spiritual world. Because what we want to believe is that there's heaven above with Jesus, God and his angels, right? And there's harps. And it's mystical, whimsical. We sit on clouds. And then there's hell below and there's Satan and his little devils and demons and they're all burning, dressed in red. And then here we are on earth just trying to live as good as we can so that the elevator goes up when we die and it doesn't go down, right? That's the cartoonized. But when we read scripture, we're gonna get into a big conflict. And that's where we have to lay down sometimes our preconceived ideas and our understanding of maybe I've just never been taught this. And so we see this war rise up in, in heaven and Michael, this head of the angelic host, he's fighting against Satan and his angels. Satan is thrown down to earth and it says that there's no longer any place for them in heaven. This is a future event. So if we reverse engineer it, what's it saying? Satan's in heaven right now? Yes. I love you. I'm sorry. And that probably hurts to hear. I know the first time I came across this passage, I said, I hate this book. Who wants to go to heaven where there's Satan there? But when we look and it says that he's thrown down, there's no place any longer for them in heaven. And when you search all of scriptures, you know what? One, you, know, you will never find a verse that states this. You know where Satan has never been? Hell. Now hell is prepared for him and his demons. But we have no understanding and no scriptural revelation that he is there now. It goes against our Hollywood idea of this little fiery devil down there with the pitchfork and horns and a spiky little tail. Now there are six dwellings of Satan and we'll talk about those. So first two, the throne of God in the Garden of Eden. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 28, both of those when he was an angel, right? And then uh, we'll talk about his fall in a minute. So there's two. Ephesians 2 and 6 talks about where he is dwelling in the atmospheric heavens 
Obviously, here in Revelation 12, he's on earth. And then Revelation 20 says that he'll be in the abyss or the bottomless pits and then the lake of fire. You search all of scripture. These are the six dwellings of Satan. You will never find Satan dwelling in hell. These are the six dwellings of Satan. Now there is the fall of Satan, and we think about that, and it's a reference to like Isaiah 14, I believe. Uh, Keep saying, I am, I am. And so Lucifer, this angel of worship, tries to put himself above the place of God, which when we hired Luke, that was like my number one question. Are you gonna put yourself above the place of God as a leader in worship? No? Okay, perfect, that's what we want, right? And so we have four falls of Satan. So he fell from glory. That's Ezekiel 28. And so in a really poor analogy, let me try to help understand that. There are certain things um, that I could do that are sinful that I would lose my position as a pastor. I firmly believe that. I've looked at the board and I said, if I ever do any of these things, you better fire me and remove me from the position. And almost like with a smile on their face, we'd be like, we'd be glad to. Like, easy now, right? But I think there is something uh, because as a leader, I'm judged in a more strict manner as, of, as a pastor and as a leader. And there are things that a pastor can do uh, that he will lose his ministry. And he will fall from that glorious position of being able to shepherd God's people. It's one of the greatest things in the world, and I'm blessed to be able to do it. But I know my life matters, and there's certain things that I could do to lose that. But I could still be a part of Calvary. But I fell from that glory, but I'm, I could still walk into the church. Hopefully not get beat up by a few of you. And I think that's one of the plagues of the American church is the amount of sin that is put up with in the pulpit. And we're too afraid to be biblical and our church discipline, not even with each other, but with the pastor and with the leader. And we overlook sin. And I tell you right now, we have six men full of the Holy Spirit that will not overlook my sin because they love you guys far more than they love me. And that's the best position to be. Well, they love Jesus more than you, right? So they're going to do that out honoring him. But no, they're going to guard the church. And if I ever do anything outside of those bounds, they will absolutely remove me. I will fall from that position, just like Satan. He fell from that glory. But we don't see a fall from access to heaven until here in Revelation, which, again, that's a struggle. Then we bring up these kind of obscure verses, and I had them all listed out, but I only put one up there. So think about Job. Satan appears before Job. Or not before Job. In Job, Satan appears before God. And what's God say? Hey, where you been, bud? Just roaming to and fro. What about you? I'm just down at the 7-Eleven. I mean, they're just having like a normal conversation. And he's like, oh, have you ever thought about my servant Job? You ever want to test him? And they start having this conversation. And then we put that into our Hollywood understanding of heaven and hell. And it's like, why are these two people talking? They're utter enemies. And they're in the same spot. What's going on? And then in Kings, you hear not even just Satan, but some of his fallen angels, some of the demons. It's like uh, Yahweh says, okay, who, who's going to go and deceive Ahab? And it was a lying spirit that came and said, hey, I will go and indwell Ahab. And, and be a lying spirit unto him. So he makes bad decisions. Why is Yahweh speaking to a lying spirit? What? And then Zechariah 3.1 says, the angel of the Lord, which I believe is Christ. And who's over his right shoulder? Satan. So that he could accuse him. We don't like this. We don't like this idea. And so we have to have a proper understanding of the spiritual world. Because remember, everything was one. Sin is what tore it apart. And so right now, instead of this heaven, hell, earth, I believe there's a spiritual world and a physical world. And the physical world is a mere representation, a reflection of what's going on in the spiritual world. And we could dive deeper into some of the crazy stuff that when we see the fall of Satan, it it mimics the fall of man. And we see those things, but it's a whole nother sermon. But we see this fall from the access of heaven, meaning that he's, he's there now. Like there's, there's access that Satan has to heaven. So we have to understand, what does that spiritual realm look like then? 
if you would take a court scene and a battlefield and combine those, that would be a that would be in a step in a really good direction to understand what's going on. Because what does it say of Satan? He's accusing day and night, what? The brethren. So the idea would be, yeah, if I died tonight, I thank you that you didn't applaud at that. I really appreciate that. No. <laughs> if I died tonight and I stand before God, Satan is going to be there to accuse me and say, look at him, that liar, that thief, that fornicator. He's going to bring up every sin, everything, and he's going to accuse me to the Father, to the judge. And the whole time I have to stand there and hear my sin just being thrown out there. No secret sin, everything. But then you know what I'm going to hear? Jesus. Satan, you're only saying his sin, but I know his name. Because what does Jesus say? If you proclaim my name before men, I will proclaim your name before the Father. And so Jesus is our defender. We love that. But he's our defender against the accuser and the rejoicing that we see here in Revelation when he's thrown out. It's like somebody getting thrown out of court. This constant nagging and accusing of the brethren that finally stops and he's thrown out, knowing that that is an event that's gonna move along the timeline of what God is doing. Because I believe when in the seals there was only a fourth of God's wrath that was kind of endured, right? And then it was a third, a third of the water, a third of the people, a third of the sun, all that is effective. Why did God restrain and not go full strength until the second half of the tribulation? Because the devil, Satan himself, wasn't on earth. That he restrained the full strength of his wrath until he was cast down to earth and then God pours out the fullness of his wrath. That accuser, that liar, the deceiver of the world. So Christ is our defender, not just on this side of glory, but even that side of glory. And we see this, this courtroom battlefield scene being played out. And we know that, again, going back to the falls, that not just from access to heaven, but he's going to be, uh, fall is a, a, a polite way to say it, but he's going to be thrown into the abyss and bound for a thousand years. That's what the millennium is. And then Satan is going to be thrown from then the abyss into the lake of fire. Death, hell, Hades all chucked into the lake of fire. And we'll see more why he was thrown to earth next week in chapter 13. But look what it says at the end of 12. Satan pursues the woman. So going back to our tribulation timeline, I think it's the next slide actually, yeah. Tribulation timeline. He was protecting the Jews here, but he breaks that covenant. Then he starts attacking the Jews. He's pursuing the woman. And then he's gonna make war with the rest of her offspring. Those are the Gentile believers that are gonna come to faith in this tribulational time. That even those that are not Jewish, Satan's gonna attack them as well. Because just as we in the church were grafted into Jewish promises, anybody who finds faith in Christ, Jesus is Jewish. He is a Messiah. And Satan is against anybody that finds hope in Christ. And he's going to pursue after them. He's going to make war with the rest of them. And that's where we go back to even Revelation 11 too, And it says that they're going to trample the city for 42 months. That's a literal hell on earth for three and a half years, which takes us even back to the prophecy given us in Daniel 9, verse 26, where it says that the Antichrist will destroy the city and its end shall come with a flood. What was he using to attack the woman? It was a flood. In the end, there shall be war. And so for us as the church, knowing that we are not destined for this wrath, then why do we need to know this? Have you ever been to movies with a friend and you've already seen the movie, but they haven't? Isn't that just a test of patience not to want to tell them everything? Or maybe it's been the other way. You haven't seen the movie and you're sorry for a friend has. And then the whole time they're like, oh, right, this part right here, watch, watch. Oh, you're going to love this. This is really funny. It's like, how you just get out of here, buddy? Right? That's, we, and we have that desire in us to want to tell somebody of what's to come. 
We love that in the movies. We need to have that same passion and heart for Scripture, that we know what is to come. And it is a bittersweet, as we've been talking about. There is the sweetness to know the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ to redeem us from this. But there's also the bitterness of those, what their future would hold them if they reject Christ and they walk in that rebellion. And so our study of Revelation shouldn't cause us to be less passionate about the lost, the hurt, and the broken. It should ignite in us a greater fire and desire for people to come to know Christ because of what they're saved to and what they're saved from. But if we don't have a proper understanding of what they're saved from, that dilutes the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we just trust you, Lord. And as we drink deeply of your word and we and our, our theological foundations at times can be just shaken. Lord, your word is our foundation. You, Christ, are our rock. And I pray that we as the church, knowing that we're not destined for this, but I pray that we would have a burden for those that are not walking in a saving relationship with you. And Lord, use us. Just as we talk about serving as you are working in and through the church more, more than that, Lord, use us as you are working in and through our community and our world in the hearts of those that have not put their faith and their trust. And so, Lord, as, they, as you are working in their hearts, use us to be a trumpet of salvation to them. Give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... As we close, if you want prayer, there's a couple different ways. First, if you're on campus, there's a prayer team in the back of the sanctuary in the corner, ready and willing to pray with you and for you. And if you're online, or if you need prayer throughout the week, here's a text prompt that you could send the word prayer to that number and set up a conversation with us. And we'll start uh, praying for you about whatever's going on in your life. And so we wanna make those available to you. If you're interested in what does it mean to follow Jesus? Maybe you've never put your faith and your trust in him. Here's another text prompt for you. Just text the word begin to the same number. And we wanna provide resources for you, knowing that no matter where you're at, what you've done and what you've been through, Jesus wants a relationship with you. And if you're interested in continuing the conversation from today's message, I encourage you to check out the breakdown. It's a podcast where we break down this week's message. You can find it on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, podcast, or any other podcasting platform. And as always, just want to invite you next week as we continue our study in the letter from Patmos. Have a great week.